Amen. Thank you all for, for being willing to sing that on no notice. It was on my heart. Did you hear those words? Here in our weakness, you find us falling before your throne. The only thing God can use is people that recognize our own weakness. And I guess that's one reason I'm growing to love this congregation more and more all the time. We're a bunch of weak people who are coming together to get strength from somebody much greater than us. And I'm thankful for that. I'm going to begin reading in Colossians. We'll continue with this um, burden the Lord gave me to try to teach about the ecclesia. We'll begin in Colossians today, if you want to turn there. Uh, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament right after Philippians. Ultimately, all of these messages, everything really that I preach, is all about our great Savior. And thus, is helping us understand more of how He wants us to do things prayerfully. Uh, Colossians, this is um, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a particular place at a particular time, a local uh, group. And it still applies to us by extension because the Lord saw fit for it to be included in the Bible. I'm just going to start reading. Um, I'll start in the ninth verse of the first chapter of Colossians. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That'll be a sermon for another day, but wow! You can actually be filled with the knowledge of what God wants you to do. You can. You can know His will. You don't have to float around and not be sure of it. To be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord. If you want to please God, it's not going to be possible without the knowledge of His will and spiritual understanding. The only way to walk worthy of Him is to have knowledge of His will and spiritual understanding being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What we experienced last week, what we experienced the week before that, what prayerfully we're experiencing today, we can have more next time and more tomorrow. The Lord doesn't mean for us to just plateau. Strengthen the knowledge, increasing in the knowledge of God. 11th verse, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, not yours, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Another sermon for another day, but you can actually suffer joyfully. And you can have a long-suffering attitude toward each other with joy through God's grace. Twelfth verse, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or appropriate to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who, and we're talking about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, 
the ecclesia who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I'm going to pray. Holy Father, Lord, I come before you today after reading this passage of Scripture, being reminded of your preeminent power, God, your, your grace that you've given us, and your, uh, just everything about you that leaves me speechless. Thank you, Jesus. Help us as we approach your word today. Come with your Holy Spirit. Just help me. Get myself out of the way and help our minds, hearts, ears to be open to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I almost feel at a loss of the amazingness of our Savior. We'll dig into this passage a little bit more in the message. I want to read it as a backdrop and that be in your hearts as we continue. Um, The first time we tried to approach this idea of the body of Christ... We talked about the seven categories that influence how people do church or how people more appropriately come together and worship and fellowship before the Lord. And I'll just mention again because repetition helps us get it. The first category is the life and teachings of Jesus. The second category is everything explicitly taught in Scripture. The third category is everything implicitly taught in Scripture. Category two and three help us understand how to understand category one. The purpose of Scripture is to help us understand the will of God. (laughs) And Jesus lived the will of God in his life. Um, The fourth one is what God has written in our hearts. The fifth one is what he reveals by his Holy Spirit and leads by his Holy Spirit and prompts by his Holy Spirit. So this is the new and living way that Jesus promised us being fulfilled by his Holy Spirit still today. Four and five, what he wrote in our hearts, what he leads with his spirit, help us actually do what he taught. As we just read in Paul's letter, we, it's not possible to... Are you all cold? You want to turn up the heat one? Can we do that? Turn it up a degree. Um, it's not possible to do what God has taught us without his help. And I sat there and wept all over again when I thought about my little girl. I told you all the story, but she wants to help clean up and throw away her own diaper. But she can't get to the trash can. She can't get high enough. We pick her up. She carries it. She drops. That's what God does with His Holy Spirit. I love it. It's beautiful that He literally helps us do what He wants. So don't be too hard on yourself or too self-reliant either. Uh, And then I said category six is everything that helps us do those first five. And category seven is what we want to get rid of. All the stuff that doesn't help. Last week, I'm just giving a little bit of overview because the repetition will help us remember it. Last week, we said before we can really understand or dig in to those categories of what should influence how we worship the Lord and how we assemble and how we come together as his congregation, we had to look at some of the history. And we talked about Bible translation, we talked about the history of state government, we talked about the corruption that happens when you have a state-sponsored ruler who's the king and also the religious head. We talked about how none of that is biblical and how Christ is supposed to be our only head. We don't, and by the way, we don't, in this congregation, we're, we're an autonomous ecclesia. We don't answer to anybody but God and each other. 
And not all, not all congregations do it that way. Some have to answer to the local bishop or some, I don't know what terms, depends on who you're talking to. But we are autonomous, we're separate, we do things the best we know how. Because that's the New Testament model. That there is a local congregation in a particular place submitting as a body to Christ the head. It's very difficult to be part of a body if you've never met the pastor. Like a lot of people now, and I understand some people are shut-ins, but they stay home and watch a pastor on TV and call him their pastor, but he doesn't know who they are. He's not their pastor. You can't be part of a body you've never even seen in person. Okay, so the local body is, is New Testament idea. We talked about uh, the word for church coming from the Greek word ekklesia over a hundred times in the New Testament, and that uh, we are the called out of God. That's what the word means. The better translation is congregation. That's how Tyndale translated it and paid for it with his life. And then I read this definition, which I think is from the Lord because it, it sticks so deep in my heart. In its purest sense, the ecclesia is meant to be the living, breathing embodiment of the will of God expressed as the body of Christ. I'll continue. She's comprised of individual members. The body of Christ is comprised of individual members mutually submitting to each other and ultimately to the direction of her head, Jesus, Each member has an equal say in a New Testament congregation, just as each member in a human body has a voice and a say. But ultimately, as with the human body, the head must direct the members of the body to do things that are good for it, even if it might not feel like it at the moment. So also the head of the congregation, Jesus, can direct members of the body to do things that might not seem good to us at the moment. Do you understand that? The part of us to have success as a congregation of God is to... Have enough humility to mutually submit to each other. In other words, we don't come in here and thank God it hasn't felt this way, but we don't come in here with an attitude of, well, I want it my way. I don't want it my way. I'm telling you that from a deep place in my heart. I want to figure out what the Lord is showing us and submit to His way. And sometimes we submit to each other. We deal with each other's problems because we're all broken. And that's part of how it is. So if we're honest, some Sundays somebody might rub you the wrong way, might hurt your feelings, you might think somebody ignored you, they might have been thinking about something else. All of that stuff we, we let go of. That's part of being long-suffering and it's part of being a body. You remember that place in Scripture where it says, if the eye says I'm not part of the body or the foot says I'm not part of the body, is it no longer part of the body? You, you, in a body, if my hand... My, uh, let me give you an analogy. I've done this more times than I should have. My right hand swings a hammer and smashes one of my left fingers. My left finger who is smashed doesn't get mad at the right hand and say, well, I'm leaving this body. We don't understand the significance and the permanence of the body of Christ. When one of your body parts accidentally or even intentionally harms another body part, that body part doesn't get to just leave. Now, don't make, I'm not saying something I'm not saying. There's times that you need to go somewhere else, you move, you join a different body. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'm saying 
those of us that God has brought together here who have decided, and I want to distinguish this because this is all part of the teaching on the ecclesia. Everybody here today, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm glad you're worshiping with us. I don't feel like there's any visitors here today now because all of you have been here before. We've prayed for you. We've prayed together. We've worshiped together. In that sense, we're all part of God's family and we're all worshiping Him. But there is another thing. According to the New Testament model, there are people here who have voluntarily submitted themselves to this congregation and how this congregation believes we should do things to the best of our ability and have become members. And those of you who've done that, you don't get to just willy-nilly do whatever you want and leave because you got your feelings hurt or because something happened. That's not how it works. Do you understand? Because this isn't taught on much. We need to understand how important it is. Jesus spent His life. We think He just came so we could go to heaven someday. He came to establish the ecclesia so that we can fulfill His commission in this life so that a whole bunch of other people can go to heaven someday and worship Him in the meantime while they're here. His purpose and mission in life was much bigger than the salvation of just one person or two person or a million people's souls. He came to establish an institution that would perpetuate what He did with His life. He established a living legacy that is fulfilled through all of the bodies of Christ. The ecclesias that are all around in different places trying to submit to the New Testament model and do what He taught. And that's part of what we're trying to understand better with these messages. When the Lord established His ecclesia, none of the familiar religious entrapments that we now have were present then. None of the religious stuff that, that we have become comfortable with were present when Jesus established his ecclesia. Do you know what I'm talking about? There, there weren't pews, there weren't buildings like this, they didn't have drywall or carpet or, or paint like we have or cars or light bulbs, all the things that we think make a church. They didn't have that stuff. And even when later, hundreds of years later, nice buildings started being built, a bunch of other things got added in. We have to remember that when Jesus established His congregation, it was all about the body. The living, breathing embodiment of the will of God expressed as the body of Christ with Him as her head. Jesus spent His time, I don't want to say the wrong word, but roaming around with a group of, <laughs> not, I mean, religious rejects. None of the approved, I mean, there weren't like Pharisees or rabbis in His 12 apostles. There were fishermen and tax collectors. And it was so odd that God chose these people, that Jesus chose these people, that it completely confounded the listeners. They said, how is it possible that these men who are just Galileans and fishermen are speaking with so much authority and power? They must have been with Christ. 
The distinguishing mark on the, the, the early congregation of God was His power, His presence, and a persuasiveness that was beyond words or logic. All the religious stuff came later. So far away from a religious system or any system at all, Jesus gave us Himself, the new and living way, which is beyond the veil. There's no system that can do what a new and living way does. I want us to get that. It's in my heart. Jesus didn't give us the old-timey way. He didn't give us missionary Baptists. He didn't give us Pentecostals. He didn't give us Methodists. He didn't give us Catholics. He gave us Himself. We came along with all that later because we couldn't figure out how to submit to Him perfectly. There is one church in that sense. And, and that's a, it will take too much time to explain today. But there is a bride of Christ. And there are people who are going to be in that bride that might be members of local congregations that have names that are different than anything we have here. I'm not the one who selects people for the bride of Christ. He is. And that, again, that's another sermon for another day. But here's the point I'm trying to make with that, and then I'll continue. Jesus established His ecclesia. The fracturing came later because of our own sin. The denominational fracturing is because of our problems. Does that make sense? Okay. So, really, what I'm talking around is, who is Jesus? <laughs> Before, before we can understand what he meant to do with his ecclesia, because that's the question we're considering, how should the body of Christ function with Christ as our head? What should it look like? What should influence us? How should we make decisions? How should we worship? Before we can understand what, what he wants his body to do, we have to understand who he is. You want to know what the body is like? Look at the head. So let's just think about some of the scriptural points that uh, we, we know about Jesus. And I'm just going to say these. These were some of the ones God put on my heart. There are a lot more. But the first is Jesus is the Son of God. That's taught all throughout Scripture. It's pointed to in the, in the Old Testament. We see the fulfillment of Him coming in the New Testament. And uh, we believe in a virgin birth in this congregation. Because it's what the scriptures teach. Jesus, at this, a lot of nominal Christians, people who say they're Christians, and maybe they really are saved, they don't actually believe this happened because it's impossible. <laughs> but Jesus said, with men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. He came into the world in a way that was scientifically impossible. His mother, and I, this is basic, Sunday school, but I, I want to say it so we get it again. His mother was a virgin, Mary. She had never been with a man. She got pregnant. How? It says, Scripture says, the Spirit of God overshadowed her. The Holy Spirit implanted the seed into her. This is a, a great mystery. 
And we can't just understand it with our mind. But God put His seed in her, and so Jesus had... I don't even know how to say this. I don't think DNA is the right word. He had the DNA of Mary. And maybe... I don't know if it's the right word. Maybe he had the DNA of God the Father or something deeper than DNA. You understand, science is limited to understand the infinite. But Jesus was made of a woman so that he would be born as a man without sin, but under this system that we're all born in that is sinful. The first Adam was sinful. The last Adam, Jesus, came. And the only way He could forgive us for our sins is to actually be one of us. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. That wouldn't have been possible if He was just God roaming around in the flesh. He was born as a baby. I've said this one time. There were a bunch of kids in the congregation. I said, do you realize somebody had to change Jesus' diaper? And they just giggled, four and five, six-year-olds. Do you understand what God subjected Himself to? The the humility that it took for Jesus? Knowing this would happen. And God, knowing that He was sending His Son into a fallen world to be helpless for a time. All babies are helpless. And yet Jesus was God. That's the second point. Jesus is God. One of the main problems that the religious authorities at the time of Christ had with Him is he said, I and the Father are one. I and my Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He taught that he himself was one with God. If that wasn't true, it was the worst kind of heresy. And you would understand why they're upset, except that it was true, (laughs) which made them even more upset. Not only is Jesus the Son of God and is God, this is one of the things that I love, and what we read in Colossians helps us see it. But He is the exact image of God, the being of God. This maybe helps us reconcile the apparent disparity between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That might help you reconcile in your mind some of the mean old God in the Old Testament idea that you have absorbed, which isn't true. Listen to this again from Paul's letter. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of who God is. He is the firstborn of every creature. By Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, that are visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Wow. You can't overestimate the importance of Jesus. And sometimes in our feeble, limited way of trying to understand things, we think of the Godhead as a hierarchy, of like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus is underneath. That might be true in certain contexts, but He is God. And the Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists with all of three of those offices as part of who He is. 
And everything I'm saying, I'm saying that doesn't really capture it because these aren't parts of a whole. These, these are Him. <laughs> and they're not these. Our language is insufficient. We see here in this uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians as well, or, or his Colossian letter, um, what is taught clearly in the first chapter of John. And I'll just quote that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is the Logos. The Greek word is Logos. This is, uh, there are other words that could have be, be used. Oh, by the way, one time I was trying to preach in Spanish and I didn't understand the difference and why they translated it how it was. This will help us understand what I'm getting to. And in one Spanish translation, it said, uh, en el principio era el verbo. And another one, it said, uh, palabra. And I, I asked the native speaker, what is the difference? Why does this one translate the word as verbo, verb? And why does this one translate it as palabra, word? And he said, because he's the word, he's the power. He's... And I said, okay, I get it. The living word. They even understand in, in that language, there's a difference. Jesus isn't just the word, like part of the alphabet. He's alive. And so in the Greek language, logos, which is where we get the word, word in this context, is alive. It's the living word. So when, I, when you say this in John 1, in the beginning was the word. This is the logos, the living word, not just language. He pre-existed language. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I can't, I mean, my brain's not big enough to get what that means, but I understand what I think it means. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, here's how I conceive of it. In creation, we see this pattern. God said, and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke. The Logos went out from His mouth and made these things. The living Word of God, that was in the beginning with God. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Word, the Logos. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, my mind is incomplete and insufficient to understand this, but Jesus, the baby, born of Mary, wasn't in the beginning. He wasn't Jesus, the Messiah, until He was born. Do you understand? But He always existed in the bosom of the Father. That's what Scriptures teach. He was in the heart of God as the Logos. And He was there in the beginning in creation. In fact, nothing was created without Him. Nothing existed without Him. Nothing happened without Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. <laughs> the rest of that passage. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Beautiful, beautiful teachings of God. So, Jesus is not just the Son of God. He's also God. He's also the exact image of God. And He is the eternally existing Logos. Jesus said in John eight fifty eight, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Beautiful. Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
the remitter of sins, the mediator between God and man, and I could go on and on and on. It wouldn't be inaccurate to say He is everything. And, as we see in Paul's letter and throughout Scripture, He is the head of the body of Christ. He's the head of the ecclesia. 18th verse, He's the head of the body, the church, or the ecclesia, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And let me say a note about that before I go any further. There are some Sundays we come together and worship, and there is a level of fullness that we might have trouble describing. I want more of that. But in the moment, sometimes it's almost more than our flesh can handle. At least that's how I feel sometimes. That is because... Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, not in bodily form, people say Jesus passed by or Jesus was here or I saw Jesus. None of that is scriptural. Jesus is on the right hand of the Father in heaven waiting for His enemies to become His footstool. The Holy Spirit is here. And it matters. It matters because we want to be accurate. Jesus, it it pleased the Father for all fullness to dwell in Him. So when you feel that fullness of the Holy Spirit, it is... Because of this, that we're experiencing knowing Christ and being blessed by His Spirit. And that in all things He might have the preeminence. We want to make sure we understand this. If we want to continue to have good services, and by good services I mean we leave better than we got here. Not just feeling better, because that can be transitory. I mean we leave better because we have encountered God in a deeper way. It's my prayer that that happens every time we meet. That there would be a deeper understanding of who He is that leads to a deeper transformation of who we are becoming so He can continue using us. We can continue to be changed from glory to glory. That's what Scripture teaches. One of the only ways that will happen, and this has to be present, is for Christ to always have the preeminence. I am so thankful that our services have been like they have been lately. I feel like He has, for the most part, with our imperfect selves, He has had the preeminence. We've tried to to submit to Him and look to Him and give Him... Uh, the glory and the focus that He alone is worthy of, but we must remember as we continue to worship and meet together and try to serve the Lord that that has to be how it is. Scripture says, I am the Lord and I will not share my glory with another. And we'll continue to talk about that, continue to preach about it. And I'll tell you what, if this is honest, I think it's accurate and it's certainly how I feel. Somebody in here gets carried away, you might find me lovingly putting my arm around you and tell you to sit down. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But Christ must have the preeminence. We're not here to get attention for ourselves. And I'm not, I'm not pointing at anything you did yet. I'm warning us because there's a tendency for that to happen when there's freedom. 
You can, somebody asked me, is it okay if I raise my hands? Hey, yes. <laughs> is it okay if I say amen? Somebody, yes. Is it okay if I agree with you out loud? Absolutely. Well, what if I need to shout? Well, you better be sure the Lord's in it, but if He wants you to, do it. If God is leading you... Now, everything has to be done decently and in order. He never brings chaos. Something I've told people when they'll say, how was church? And I'll say, it was so good and powerful. And then I have to clarify, but it wasn't noisy. Isn't that weird that I have to clarify that? Because we think powerful is noisy, and yet that's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. The wind came, the, the rocks were breaking off, all this noise happened, and then a still small voice spoke to Elijah. The power of God is not noisy, and he's certainly not chaotic. But sometimes the fullness of God <laughs> overflows outside our little limited frame. And that's why some of you have seen services where people got beyond themselves and God was in it. And you've also seen services where people got carried away and God wasn't in it. What's the point of all that? Continue to keep your eyes on Jesus. Be sensitive to the leadership of His Holy Spirit and we won't have to worry about it. Let's continue with this idea of who Jesus is. And I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read how Tyndale translated it since we talked so much about him. And funny enough, even though it's from the 1500s, it's more current than the authorized version that came 70, 80 years later. But y'all may have this passage memorized in King James, whatever the case. I'm just going to read this. Listen. God in time past, diversely and in many ways, spake unto the fathers by the prophets... But in these last days he hath spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath made heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, which Son, being the brightness of his glory, the very image of his substance, bearing up all things with the word of his power, hath in his own person purged our sins, and is sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, and is more excellent than the angels, inasmuch as he hath by inheritance obtained an excellenter name than they have. <laughs> is that beautiful? It overwhelms me. God spake to us, or spoke to us, in different ways, in different manners, in different styles, in these last days, He has spoken unto us by His Son. Do you realize what a privileged time we're living in? People are always talking about privilege. They don't even know what they mean by the word in our culture. I'm talking, how blessed are we that we live in this age of grace and favor. I would rather live now than 2,500 years ago. Those people still knew God. I'm talking about the ones who submitted to Him and repented and trusted Him. They were saved the same way we are. But all of this that we know about Jesus had not yet happened. Do you realize how blessed we are? We can know what Jesus taught, what He lived, what He did. If we wonder how something should be, all we have to do is look to Jesus. If we wonder how we should treat people, see what Jesus did. If we wonder what we should do about this or that, see what Jesus did. He modeled how we should be. 
And before Jesus, we never had that from God. Because God, don't misunderstand me, but God was not on the earth as a man subjected to our problems and weaknesses and living as one of us. We never saw what God would be like as a man until Jesus was here. We're so fortunate, so blessed. I want to read a, a different way this is translated. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. He shines forth the very essence of who God is. The very personage of God shines forth from Jesus. And do you know to a degree that's what God means for us? Not to do, but to have. He means for us when we're saved and transformed to shine forth His personage to the world. And you can't do that with just theological information. You can only do that with God's power and presence. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. (laughs) Another one translates it this way. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Jesus. Again, he's our everything. Now we're going to spend some time, maybe next time, on that first point. The life and teachings of Christ. Everything he explicitly commanded. Everything he implicitly taught, everything he modeled in his own life, because this is, this is what we have to get. Everything else will work out if we can lay hold of this one thing. And I'll just give you maybe a little bit of a preview or what's on my heart about that. I mentioned that if you want to understand God, you need to look at Jesus. And this divide that seems to be between Old Testament and New Testament is just because we don't understand who God really is. People think that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, faraway God up there quaking down fire and rumblings and lightning bolts and thunder and very mean and very mad and very distant. Part of why that perception is there is because of our own sin. I've preached on this and don't have time to go into it in depth today. But there is this pattern in the Old Testament where God wanted to have covenant relationship with His people and they chose to subject themselves to a legal relationship instead. There was a time that God dwelt in this mountain so that the people could have an identifiable place that the presence of God was. You have to remember they spent hundreds of years in slavery. And they thought as slaves, just like our culture today. Most of the people around us think like slaves. And God had to start teaching them in ways like they were little babies. He had to give them visual things so they could understand realities that were beyond their ability to grasp. And one of the ways he did that was the the pillar of fire and the cloud and putting his presence or dwelling in a particular location so that they could grasp the idea of that is a holy place that is separate from us and different and greater and higher. And so God's presence was in this mountain and the people were terrified of it. 
And they should be afraid of, of the power of God. But what they didn't get that Moses did get, do you remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory? You remember that? And I don't think he asked it lightly. I think he knew what it would do to him. And God said, I can't show you my glory. I'll pass by. I can't let you see the front of me. I'll pass by, cover your face, and you can see the back of me. Because nobody can see my face and live. Except Jesus, Jesus has seen the face of God. I have so much I can't get across. So Moses sees a portion of the glory of God that's greater probably than anything we've, any of us have seen. And that's all he wants. And he tells the people, you don't understand, God wants to have this kind of relationship with you. And they say, you go up in the mountain, find out what God says, come back and tell us and we'll do it. But we're afraid to talk to him face to face. It wasn't God's fault. He wanted that kind of relationship. He had that kind of relationship with Moses and Joshua and Caleb and other faithful servants. But the majority of the people said, just tell us what to do. It's too hard to actually know you. Listen, nothing has changed. It's the same today. Just tell me the rules and I'll do them. Just tell me what I'm allowed to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what I'm not allowed to do and I'll not do it or at least pretend I didn't. No, God wants to actually know you. And that's part of the point of, of these messages, part of what God has laid on my heart. Is what will it look like if the body of Christ actually knows the head and then submits completely to him? You remember what I said a few months back? It'll be like nothing we've ever seen. And I want to reiterate that as I close today. Get out of your mind this idea that we just need the church to go back to like it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or back when I was a kid or back when Granny was a kid. I don't want that. I want the presence of God and what He shows us now. What will it look like? I'm not really sure. There are characteristics that will follow the New Testament model, to be sure. But this idea of fitting into a pattern that we're used to is not what we're going for. I'm finished. I feel, I feel like that's all that I should bring today. I want to encourage you to continue to be prayerful. Um, my sense, I don't know if you'd agree with this, my sense is that the Lord is using me to lay a foundation that we can build from. Because a lot of us have in our foundation a lot of brokenness. A lot of noise, a lot of stuff, a lot of religious things that shouldn't... We need to build the right kind of foundation and then things are going to happen. I believe that.